This is the gospel uh, perichoresis and a term that I ran into in that theology class that I was in. And the term is meta-narrative. And uh, it, was, it, uh, it was a presentation that came about three quarters of the way through. The concept was fascinating. And uh, once I understood what it applied to in Christianity, it made a lot of sense and, and I appreciated it. Uh, meta-narrative is kind of a philosophic word. And so I'll go through a couple of uh, definitions so you know what we're talking about. I do have two review slides. What's life without a review, right? Okay, and, and this, is, this is it. This is the review of our, the true elements of our gospel story. We've looked at these for like three or four weeks. God exists eternally in the dynamic love relationship of Father, Son, and Spirit. And then when we studied about perichoresis and kind of came to understand the meaning of that, perichoresis defines the nature of that love relationship. It defines the mechanics of it. So that's an important thing. And one of the reasons that I, I included this as a review slide is because these things that are on this slide are or probably should be a part of our meta-narrative for the gospel, okay? All that God does, especially in redemption, flows directly out of the relationship uh, between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and His divine love. So everything that God does, He does that way. The other way to put that is in the negative. There's never a time and there's never a circumstance into which God acts or thinks or decides that he isn't acting in conjunction uh, in that relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So there's no, uh, there's no non-Father, non-Son, non-Holy Spirit decisions that God makes or edicts that he does or declarations that he makes. He doesn't, he doesn't operate that way. This is his eternal nature. Coming to know God personally and experientially is the salvation that is being given by the Father through Jesus and the Holy Spirit. It is eternal life. It is redemption. It is the fruit of our salvation. And it's just so critical that we keep thinking that. And this idea of eternal life and knowing God personally, meaning our salvation is to be experienced now. It's not just a future hope. I'm not saying there isn't going to be a future revelation that exceeds perhaps what we see right now. I, I suspect there will be. But the relationship with God, being included in the Trinitarian life, being included in the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, experiencing that, having it shared with us and having it shared through us, and seeing it in other people is a reality. It's a reality now. And the heart and the motive and the reach of the gospel is literally from the love of the Trinity. That's the nature of it. And so we're not, we're, we're, I don't think there's any surprising things in the gospel that we go, wow, that isn't from the heart of the Father. That isn't love. And this is important because if you don't, if you're not conscious about this, you know, in, intentional about it, there's a lot of circumstances in life. There's a lot of ways to interpret biblical stories. There's a lot of ways to interpret uh, natural disasters and you name it, you know that will tempt us to believe that there's other actions toward us other than the love of the Father in the Son and in the Spirit. And then I just wanted to cover the, the uh, perichoresis definition one more time. It speaks about the Trinity, but it's specifically the mutual indwelling of persons without loss of individual identity, as in Father, Son, and Spirit. The other thing I didn't cover a lot, but that is going to have some bearing on our meta narrative discussion tonight, is that perichoresis also speaks of the, the union between humanity and divinity in Jesus, his natures, the divine and the human. And so keep in mind that, that even though Jesus is a unique manifestation of that in the incarnation, he's still really human. And he is really God. And that opens the door for us in our union to retain uh, genuine truth around the concept of being in union with God or being in God and still be human. In other words, we're going to be ourselves. Our transformation is not to lose us as humans. It's not to lose us. Now, the implication of that in the gospel and in discipleship and in transformation stuff changes. Here's just a simple example of it. Our problem is not that we are too human is that we live like subhumans. We live beneath 
who God designed us to be. And the temptation, if you're not careful, is to think we need to shed our humanity and pick up some kind of otherness. And that's not really, that's not really what redemption is about. Okay? Trinity speaks to the three in oneness, and perichoresis speaks to the relationship in that three in oneness. And I, I've not spent a lot of time on this, uh, either personally or talking with you guys about it, but the triune nature and the perichoretic relationship of our God utterly, utterly sets him apart from other God concepts, other religious concepts. And so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited about, about this. All right, so what is metanarrative? Here's Google's definition of metanarrative. An overarching account of interpretation or interpretation of events and circumstances that provides a pattern or structure for people's belief and gives meaning to their experiences. So nod your head if that makes a little sense. Kind of. Uh, an overarching account or interpretation of events and circumstances that provides a pattern or structure. So the account itself is not necessarily the event. The, the overarching account thinks story. The story that is a meta-narrative is what then allows us to interpret the events or the circumstances of our life or other things. I came up with a different definition, as you might guess. So this is my definition. It's a fancy-sounding word describing foundational assumptions in story form. Rarely questioned that lie behind how and why people see and interpret data, events, and experiences the way they do. It's the whole story. Yeah, it's not so much the individual pieces, although you do, you do acquire it in pieces. But it's the, the reason that I put... Uh, Foundational assumptions, because there are a lot of assumptions that make up a meta narrative, but the, the nature of the meta narrative is that they are expressed in a story form. And that is one of the things that makes them so powerful because you remember stories. You remember stories without thinking about them. As a matter of fact, you can begin to believe stories without thinking about them. Stories don't call on you to analyze. Yeah. Okay, the question was, what, what do I think the difference is between meta-narrative and worldview? Not much. Not much. Uh, I think a worldview is maybe had a little bit more intentional cognition, intentional thought, analysis going into it. Or, and it could be only because we're in a, in a culture, Christian culture, that talks about worldview. Um, but yeah, I think, they're, I think they're very similar. I think they're very similar. And a lot of times definitions talk about that. Uh, the, the phrase meta-narrative was coined by a French philosopher, and he linked it to worldview in his definition of it. And I, uh, that was one of the many things that I could have put a slide together on and Chose not to tonight because it would be like wandering lost in the philosophic details of meta narrative. But let me explain a couple of my points here in just a second. Becoming conscious of our meta narrative, this is why I'm bringing this up and what struck me when I encountered it in the in theology class. Becoming conscious of our meta narrative is important because of the influence it exerts on what we believe and how, actually, practically, and intensely, and passionately, or not passionately, we hold to those beliefs. A lot of times we, th we, we don't know why something is a belief we hold on to. And I'm pretty convinced now that the meta narrative that runs in the back of our mind and in our heart is uh, one of the primary factors to the passion that we feel. Or the flip side of it is this, and this is something we've encountered as we've been trying to talk over how to get a better language, a different language for the gospel. When, when you suggest something, like a different way to look at sin or a different way to look at redemption or something, and something rises up in you, it probably rises out of the conditioning and the influence of the meta narrative that you're currently believing. And I think all of us have experienced 
you know, some kind of a, and, and almost always I'm now that I'm conscious of this, I'm thinking about it. I realize, well, this is wild. This is violating just something that not necessarily even I consciously have chosen to believe, but it's part of the story. And that's why I wanted to put this idea. um, It's literally impossible to change a belief that you hold if you don't change the meta narrative that it's associated with, if there's a meta narrative associated with it. Now, you can probably change your beliefs about, you know, the meat at Walmart is good uh, because you're evaluating it based on the fact that it doesn't look as nice or doesn't have the marbling that it does at Safeway or something. That doesn't involve a meta narrative for the most part. But beliefs that rest in or find their meaning in uh, a meta narrative, meta narrative has to change before you can change those beliefs. So here's my definition with a slight bit of highlighting and further explanation. A fancy sounding word word describing foundational assumptions in story form. And that is one of the things that makes it really powerful because you, you end up talking your way in your head through the story, the story form of these things. And it is rarely questioned once it's established in your life. I, 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 I don't know. I don't know, except in this last theology class I was in, and in some current political issues where there's an open questioning of something that has sort of achieved a meta-narrative status. We'll talk about that a little bit. Go ahead, Richard. So my once believing in futuristic theology. Mm-hmm. Like future eschatology stuff? Yeah, yeah. that would be a meta-narrative. Uh, the individual beliefs might be individual beliefs that you think are rooted in scripture or drawn from certain passages, but yes, the meta narrative is what builds the fort around those that make a yeah, part of the challenge. Okay. And so when I got to the place where it didn't make sense to me and I put it on the shelf, mm-hmm. it wasn't until I got a hold of the uh, other teaching to replace that. Yeah. Or it might be that 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 there was a gap in the influence of the meta narrative when you laid it aside. And in other words, if you've ever asked yourself about something when you're going through a transformation, like that doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense anymore. You've probably experienced an erosion in a meta narrative that you just counted on because that's what you always believe. And it's so it can be a really positive thing. I mean, uh, I'm not saying meta narratives are bad. I'm just saying they they're they're like slave drivers. They're uh, they create. A, con- a context in your head that's hard to pry yourself out of. Okay. All right. So here's, it's the foundational assumptions and keep in mind that they're assumptions. You don't need to study something to make an assumption about it. You don't need to have a logical set of connections to make an assumption about it. You can have an assumption. That's just, we have the power. We can just assume somebody can tell you something. And here's an example of this. Uh, you know how challenging it is when somebody you know tells you something about somebody you don't know but are going to meet. It doesn't matter at all. You don't have the ability whatsoever to research the truth of what they say about that person most of the time. But you have to contend with what they say once you finally meet the person. Because uh, the first person to tell you something, the first thing you hear, the first story somebody tells you, you have a tendency to believe it. And the belief, even if you don't consciously, like you could have and say, oh man, who would do that? You know, and you could walk away and not feel like you're uh, rendering a big judgment against the person or something, but it creates an environment. It creates a storyline that then you have to intentionally overcome when you meet that person. Make sense? Okay, so that's the assumption part of it. And then the story form, again, is, so let's say that, oh, yeah, Ronnie, go ahead, buddy. So this is me being a nerd, but uh, when you have a a picture, a photograph, Uh that photo 
has what they call metadata. So there's more behind the picture, like, for example, the location, the GPS coordinates of where that photo was taken. Right. Nowadays is part of the meta story or the meta narrative of that photo. It also has, you know, a bunch of nerdy stuff. So that all helps explain what the photo is and means and where it came from and what date it was taken, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it can those... explain that, but it can also give you some false information about that. Because okay. let's say you were going to date somebody online. First of all, you're not really sure that picture's them. And second of all, they might be taking that picture in somebody else's house, not their own, or in front of a photo. You know, so I know you're talking about the technical stuff that's buried in there, but we got to be careful that that our the input that comes into our life, especially if it comes from a trusted source or it comes from something we want to know and we hope is right, hope is true. It when it when the details are merged into a story form and they become assumptions, it can become very powerful and hard to dislodge. But that meta helps me know, for example, let's say it's a dating site. And women like to do this. They put a picture that was taken 20 years ago, and they put it up there. Um, yeah. yeah, so do men, I think. Well, okay, I haven't. There's anyways. the women in the room. So, with the metadata, if I can see it and learn more about that picture, I can know when that picture was taken. So it's helpful. It's helpful to know the meta if you. And, that, and, and that's why that's why there's a there's a factor of of analyzing and being, you know, taking a, a fresh look at the meta stories that you had, the meta narrative or whatever. So a foundational assumption in the story form. But the point is, is most people are not like Ronnie. They don't question the meta. <laughs> the meta story is something you just believe, you know, you believe it because you believe it and, uh, and it, it influences you in a little bit. It's like the, the habit thing. Uh, everybody's heard the illustration about how grandma used to take, uh, cut the end off the, the, the ham. And but the reason was because she only had a, a nine inch uh, steam pot or whatever, you know, it's that kind of story. So why do we do that? Well, we do it because we're under the influence of a meta narrative that may or may not be true. Okay. And just because it's a spiritual meta narrative doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Uh, and so it lies behind how we uh, individually, not just people in general, but us to see and interpret data. And so when I'm saying data, I'm saying, think about the scriptures. This is one of the most powerful things about unmasking the power of a meta narrative. If the meta narrative is wrong, you could read a scripture as earnestly as you wish, and you will not see what it says. And we can talk about that in a little bit. You can, you can, you just simply cannot see what it says. And we did have a, an example of a scripture like that. Go ahead. I just wonder, different translations of the Bible, are those meta narratives then? No, they're under the influence. They can create a meta narrative and they're under the influence of meta narrative. One of the ways, that was one of the things I saw in this theology class is realizing that the choices that a translator or a translation team would make is absolutely going to be influenced by what their meta narrative is behind it. So I, I just had a, a, a wonderful gift given to me. And I've never had one of these. I've, I've got it on computer and studying, but uh, a friend gave me an amplified Bible. So I have an amplified Bible for the first time in my life. And I sat down the other day, uh, a couple of days after I got it. And, uh, and I started reading a bunch of key passages that are important to me. And to a passage, now it doesn't mean this isn't still valuable to have in my library, but to a passage, the expanded or amplified explanation is, does not correspond with what I personally believe the scripture says. But it does correspond with theological assumptions and meta narratives that I recognize. Can you possibly give us an example then of a meta narrative? Yeah, we're going to get into it word. in the end. Okay. We're going to work our way through it. But Christian ones, I've got, matter of fact, I think it's the next slide's got a bunch of examples, but, but yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll make that down. Okay. So anyway, uh, so data thinks scripture. Everybody believes, every Christian believes 
that what they believe is what Scripture says. I don't know anybody that doesn't believe that. I mean, you'd have to be insane to not believe that. Otherwise, you'd believe something different, you know? But, but I always thought it was really interesting. Like, to me, the one doctrine that I like to pick on, because to me it seems so difficult to support in Scripture, is the doctrine of limited atonement. Because there's so many places that says Jesus died for all, he died for the sins of all, uh, and Adam all died, all, all, all. And so without even going into a big, deep exegesis of that, to, to come up with a doctrine that you pin as one of your premier doctrines in your theology that says Jesus didn't die for all, that is something that is deeply influenced. I used to think it was just influenced by a systematic theology. So you have a couple of systematic elements that require that, and then you just capitulate. But now I understand that meta-narrative is a big part of that as well. And you can't see it. You can't see the, the foolishness of that. Um, events, so think of those as personal experiences, too, uh, in the way they do. All right, so here we go, Tim. Here are some examples of meta-narratives, not necessarily a Christian meta-narrative. So uh, here are some meta-narratives of secular origin. The Big Bang is one. Okay, it's an overarching story about that. Another one would be natural selection and Darwinianism. And I think all of us can understand that that while you can go and 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 pick various uh, scientific discoveries and thoughts and biological experiments and observations that show a little bit of something going from one to another, there's a larger story than any of those individual things talk about that says this is how we got the way we are. And that's why if you look at the fetus of a dolphin and the fetus of a human, well, we came from dolphins. It's the meta narrative behind that of natural selection that leads people to that belief. That makes sense? Okay. So another one is materialistic determinism. And this is where I was thinking, okay, be careful. You don't go off on some weird thing. Atheists don't believe in God. So atheist philosophers can't attribute creation or design to God. So what they have to do is they have to come up with uh, the thought that with it, given an infinite amount of time and an infinite amount of possibilities and an infinite variety of applications of energy, anything can happen. But the reason that that makes sense to really smart people is because they have a meta narrative behind it that it's not possible that anyone like God exists. That's the reason. And so when, when, what you, when you discount something because of your foundational assumption, you have to replace necessary components of that with something else that you make up or that you can see or that you can associate or defend. And so, you know, I understand it. I don't feel sorry for it, but I do. Um, religious origins. Christianity is not the only one that has a meta narrative to that effect. And we have multiple ones, but uh, yeah, Ronnie, hang on a second. Uh, creation stories, mythic tales. Uh, if any of you saw the movie Eternals, first of all, you have my condolences. <laughs> it was the worst Marvel movie I've ever seen in my life. And if you haven't seen it, please spare yourself or watch it while you're uh, canning peaches or something. But, but it, they just pilfered meta narrative for creation and cosmology like crazy in that movie. They borrowed from the story of Gilgamesh, the Mesopotamian story, they borrowed from Babylonian stories, they borrowed from Chinese origin stories. All those stories are meta narratives, all of which can spawn scientific disciplines, philosophic disciplines, cultural disciplines, and people will defend them to the hill. Yes, Ronnie. How different is a meta narrative from perspective or paradigm? Uh, it's closer, I think, uh, in understanding. If I were to pick it, it would be closer to a paradigm. A, a, a paradigm acts sort of the same way. It's it's uh, it's a collection of assumptions. A paradigm is or beliefs that inform how you interpret new beliefs. So it'd be very similar to a paradigm. It's good. good okay, thanks. Okay, so here's some uh, cultural or social systems that have a meta-narrative or two behind them. Uh, colonialism, 
And uh, this was an example that I read in, in a book, and I, I'm not smart enough to go into a lot of detail about it. But there was a time in which, like uh, British colonialism, that, that's, that led to the sense of divine right of kings. It led to the sense of colonization of India, colonization of Africa, and stuff like that. It was, there was a big story. It wasn't just that, hey, we have more ships and more money and more guns, so we can take over. It's not just might makes right. There was a big story in the back of that. And the stories, the meta-narratives are always cast in a beautiful light. Like, we're going to bring civilization. We're going to bring whatever. You know, that's a meta-narratives are amazing. Rome had one. Rome was to bring what? What? Pax Romana. It was to bring peace. No matter how many of you barbarians we have to kill <laughs> to do it. <laughs> and that's the problem. Meta narratives are not connected with reality. They are almost always connected, um, or people try to connect options and realities and exercises with meta narratives. Meta narratives don't have to come from reality, they can be talked about anyway. Uh, the Enlightenment was the same way. Uh, the Enlightenment happened, and all of a sudden, humanism rose out of that. And we're going to lift people out of the dark ages. We're going to lift people out of the abuses of feudalism and so on. And then you just got a mess. I mean, it ended up leading literally to guillotines in the streets in France. But the meta narrative is what justified that. It all, and the meta narrative almost always justifies groups of people taking, um, well, I don't want to say, yeah, it, it very frequently justifies one group of people setting themselves against other people with a sense of for the greater good kind of idea. Uh, Marxism, obviously, is that. And even capitalism has a meta-narrative story behind it. You know, in other words, we're going to bring freedom, no, no, no. And we're all guilty of it a little bit. We, we're all subject to it, depending. And so now there's this big debate in our country about socialism versus capitalism. And those debates are... They can, be, they can be argued on the basis of meta-narrative, or they can be argued on the basis of objective facts. And that's why when you hear somebody say, show me one country where socialism worked. Well, yeah, but it's still better, you know, or, or something along those lines. And so I'm not trying just to defend capitalism. All right, now, so here's some current uh, news stories that, that are driven off the strength of a meta-narrative. Critical theory or critical race theory is that. The 1611 project, is that what it is, 1611 or 1619? 1619. Yeah. Anyway, uh, that is a meta narrative that was written by a person and published by, I think, the New York Times to restructure the assumptions and the story in story form of how America was formed and and how it's economically grew. Um, Another meta narrative that we're facing today is that conservatism equals terrorism. It's not just that, I mean, nobody makes the argument that the Canadian truckers are, are terrorists because of how they're behaving, because they're not behaving like that at all. They're behaving like perfectly reasonable people who are protesting for their civil rights. But the meta-narrative adds power to it, a ton of power. And people can get there. I, I don't want to get off on this too much, um, although we're doing pretty good on time. Um, I don't want to get off on it too much, but the weird things that you encounter about the COVID situation. Um, those are mostly driven by assumptions that have been linked into a meta narrative. The vaccine is perfectly safe. And if you take it, you'll be protecting everybody else on the cruise ship where 3000 people got sick and only, <laughs> and they were all vaccinated. You know, in other words, it's a meta narrative thing that, that adds to the power of it. And meta-narratives can change in contemporary situations, and they're beginning to change. Like uh, Dr. Fauci just actually verbalized before Congress and in an article uh, that we need to start calculating natural immunity. First time, two and a half years, because the meta-narrative is changing, and the meta-narrative is changing intentionally to support certain outcomes. So, uh, like I said, I don't want to get too much that way, but... Does that help Tim to understand that there's there's the facts, there's your interpretation of the facts, 
or your conclusions or your laws or your whatever. And then there's the story behind that built on assumptions that, that to you absolutely convinces you that those facts are true. Uh, Meta narratives, well, um, if they're not true, if they're not true, they can uh, they can exert a lot of influence. They do limit. Uh, they do have a tendency to limit honest inquiry about particulars, about details, and and that's that's the beef I have with them in relationship to the gospel. Okay, so now let's talk about Christian meta narratives. Christian meta narratives generally focus on similar elements. They include uh, assumptions about who God is, assumptions about creation, mankind, sin, righteousness, judgment. Now, you would say, well, why are you saying assumptions? Because, because the meta narrative can emerge based on some teaching, based on some study, but, but ultimately it can also emerge just based on, well, yeah, that, that's what I was told. Or that's, you know, grandma cut that off, and so we got to cut it off. Okay, we'll get into those in details. All Christian narratives, uh, meta narratives that I've ever heard, are presented as if and assumed to be biblical. Because generally, if they didn't come from the Bible, whatever that means, if they didn't come from the Bible, they they you'd have a hard pressed time to sell them as a Christian meta narrative. Okay. In spite of all being assumed to come from the Bible and focusing on pretty much a similar list of items, they differ widely between denominational groups and theological camps. Widely. These words, they don't even mean the same thing in certain narratives. And then lastly, they produce very different lives and very different stories. We were talking about uh, uh, in, in the pre-time back there on Zoom, we were talking about some legalistic backgrounds that some of us have experienced and had. And uh, the clothes you wear, uh, particularly if you're a woman, <laughs> meta-narratives inform a lot more about women's behavior than it does men's in most old church system. So it, it produces a lot. And also, but, but on a serious level, Tim, and not just a negative level, uh, the right meta narrative can produce a much more positive life, much more positive expectations, and it can produce a much more—I uh, don't know—much more robust kind of gospel story. Okay, and we're gonna now's where it gets technical, and our eyes might roll in the back of our heads. Okay, so what I'm trying to do—I borrowed some some stuff out of my class, and uh, I'm going to compare a couple of sort of contrasting meta narratives and we'll just compare the pieces first and think of them in in light of my definition that the individual components are assumptions that form a story that makes sense so we're going to look at the individual components so there's a couple of ways to look at sin sin is disobedience to god's command or holiness now it may be although this is uh a, a different kind of group, but it, if if we were preaching anywhere else, uh, there's a good chance that it would be more of this. For me to suggest that there is a different way to look at sin, other than disobedience to God's command or holiness. Well, yeah, a person would go. Well, the first thing they may not accuse me of heresy at first, but they might just go, "What?" I mean, that question would just sit with you like, "What? What?" That's the influence of a meta narrative, meaning that is an assumption. That definition of sin is an assumption that a person would have, and if somebody challenged it, there would be this indistinct but very visceral. Ah. So you can use that if any of these things trigger something in you to say, huh, I wonder if I'm under the influence of a meta narrative. Doesn't mean that you are or aren't. And it doesn't mean that you have to change it, but it probably would be a good thing to go ahead and consider the possibility. Okay. Uh, oh, I didn't go to that one. Let me back up. So sin is seeking our identity in anything other than or outside of Jesus. 
You see how different those two things are? One is an act that we do or fail to do. Another is a mindset. And both are capable of defining something about us. Okay? Judgment. Judgment is God pouring out his wrath on sin and sinners. Why do you put that as an option? What else would it be? That's the power of a meta-narrative talking. Uh, Another possibility uh, is that I misspelled judgment on that side. Sorry. Judgment is a crisis of the light coming into darkness. Now, let me explain a little bit about that. Because generally, if you're going to go from one assumption to a new a new belief, there has to be a reason for it. And so if you could think of like John 3, 16, 17, 18 there, uh, and this is judgment that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light. See that? Judgment is a crisis of the light coming into the darkness. So there is a biblical reason for that second alternative. And there's probably scriptures about uh, like fire raining down on Sodom and Gomorrah to support that first. So again, the assumptions of a meta narrative can be true. They can be untrue. They can be partially true. That's not primarily the issue. The issue is that as they are accumulated into a storyline, they begin to exclude other possibilities. Okay? Righteousness. Righteousness is God declaring someone right before him. Now, this is probably going to be a little bit more iffy because I think most of us have grown up in church where righteousness is also a certain kind of behavior that you do. But there's a lot of this. Uh, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. A lot of people interpret that as a fully imputed, declared thing. Okay? Righteousness is the one who is right, making all things right in himself. That's a, that's a more Jesus-centered deal. But uh, kind of like what we were talking about a little bit, Janet, before, you have to begin to have some ideas of union in your head with Christ. And that day you will know that I'm in my Father. You're in me and I'm in you. Otherwise, you don't have anything to hang that kind of definition of righteousness on. Okay? How about justice? Justice is a good one. Justice is God giving everyone what they deserve. There's, you know, huh? How could that not be? You know? Uh, justice is God restoring everything to the way he intended it to be. Justice is putting the jerk that stole your car in jail. Or justice is getting your car back. (laughs) And the guy learning a lesson. Restorative justice, absolutely. Absolutely. Wrath is God pouring out anger on men. Or wrath could be God resisting man through the consequences of their lust. Uh, Another way to put it is that uh, wrath is God letting us experience the consequences of our pursuit. If you go back when Solomon dedicated the temple, he used that concept a lot. He said, if because of our unbelief, we end up getting captured and we turn and pray toward the temple. Bring us back. Because of sin, da-da-da, da-da-da, da-da-da. So that's wrath. The fall. The fall is man disobeying God and being separated from God. That's what I was taught the fall was. That was uh, a teaching that became an assumption that became a component in the story of what is going on with life and redemption and everything else. What about the possibility that the fall is man believing the lie that was spoken by the serpent about who they were and what they lacked and who God is and what he was withholding from them? Very different. Very different. So was the command, was it a command not to eat of the tree or was it a warning? Don't eat of the tree, because the day you eat of it, you'll die. Or was it the first law? 
I've heard it taught that way. Repentance. Repentance could be being sorry for your sins and stopping doing them. Or repentance could be changing your mind about who we are and who God is. Metanoia, that's interesting. It's got meta. It's the big change of mind. Grace. Grace is a gift of power to overcome and to avoid sin. Or grace could actually be the person of Jesus given to reveal the heart of the Father. Grace could be a person and not just an, a gift given or an external thing given. Faith. Faith uh, is taught a lot, and I, I, you know, I've struggled with, with this for many years, being Pentecostal churches and all that kind of stuff. Faith is a strong mental assent to certain facts about Jesus. Or faith is the manifestation of God's faithfulness revealed in Jesus in you. Paul says, the life I live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. The meta-narrative on what you think faith is is going to depend, Tim, like you said, on how you interpret that verse. So a lot of modern translations talk about faith in Christ, even though the genitive form of that word clearly should mean, in every other instance, the faith of Christ. Is it Jesus' faith, or is it my faith in him? And they can be blended together in people's thoughts, for sure. Like, faith is a gift, right? But where does the gift come from? Like, when I was studying all that stuff out, I remember walking out in my PJs and house shoes in the yard, and I was really struggling with it. And I said, Lord, is this right? I mean, because it sure looks to me like it's the faith of Jesus, the faith that comes from him, that belongs to him, that he gives us, that he has in us, that he puts in us. And I felt like the Lord just laughed and said, well, where would it come from otherwise? Is it going to come from you? Oh, no. Not from me. So, salvation. Salvation in one uh, narrative is being forgiven and going to heaven when you die. Salvation in another narrative, uh, uh, meta-narrative is the freedom to shamelessly enter God's presence right now. Shamelessly. You see how different that is? One is a future hope. One is a present opportunity, present reality. Eternal life, in this case over here, is a future hope. In this case, eternal life is knowing and experiencing Father God and Jesus now by the Holy Spirit. The gospel is the news of your opportunity to be saved through belief in Jesus. There's a lot of people that wouldn't cringe at that definition. They would cringe at the thought that that might not be what the gospel is. That's what we've been working the gospel and this other consideration is the news that Jesus is in union with you now, so you ought to believe in him. You ought to believe in him. You know, when uh, Jesus quotes there in John 16, that when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He says of sin because they don't believe in me. He doesn't say in, in sin because I haven't died for them or in sin because I didn't bring my status as the creator to bear on them and in them when I went to the cross. Because when he talked about the cross, he said, when the Son of Man be lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. Not all men believe that. So a lot of them are looking at it like an opportunity. Anyway, this is, so does this make some sense now? Where this list came from, the, uh, where it was compiled, and I did a little bit of modifying on my own thoughts, but the one over in the yellow is, is kind of a contemporary evangelical interpretation of these components. And the one in the blue is, is uh, much more closely aligned with the first, let's say, 500 years of the church and the way the early church fathers talked about this stuff. So, uh, and it's, there's a big revival of that second component. So now, let's back up Real quick and look at, uh, okay, so 
sin, judgment, righteousness, justice, wrath, and the fall. If you think about those, some or all of those being used to form a story, now you're getting the idea of what a meta narrative would be like and how you, a, a meta narrative could form based on particulars and the assumptions about what those particulars mean and be very different than a similar meta narrative or uh, than a meta narrative around the same components, but that have different assumptions about them. So, uh, justice, for instance, justice associated with wrath, associated with judgment is very different on the yellow column than it is on the right column. And then uh, same thing goes with these components. So if I were to go back to that little definition I put down, it's the uh, set of assumptions that take story form that then inform what you think about what's going on. So components of the gospel, the sinner's prayer, what we're telling people when we tell them, what we're even trying to get somebody, what the gospel is trying to convey to somebody, what it's trying to give them the opportunity to do. Is it trying to give them the opportunity to take advantage of an opportunity that is sitting more or less passively being encouraged maybe by the Holy Spirit, but more or less passively in front of them to believe in Jesus and get saved? Or using those same exact components, but viewed differently, forming different assumptions, binding them to the story form, is the gospel inviting a person sitting in this chair to recognize the unity that Christ brought to earth as creator and established with humanity in the incarnation and encouraging them to believe it. It's very different. And it'll, it'll change the way we, we see things. So the other part that I just want to remind us of a little bit, and then we'll take a couple questions, is the part like, you know, Jen, we're, we're struggling with, well, who's this written to? And, and uh, what about this? And just the part that, that makes us kind of with fear and trembling, think about changing concepts and words. I found through this exposure to meta narrative a few weeks ago and thinking about this, that I have a place to go and say, so what are my assumptions then about the story of this? And it's not that I'm automatically trying to defy some sacrosanct doctrine or violate something holy. I might be doing it. So last week, uh, where's that passage in Romans that three, uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? Three fifty. 323. Okay. So that was a question that came up last week. I just want to, I just want to look at it. Oops. There we go. I didn't mark it. Sorry. Okay. So Romans 323. Let me read. Yeah. So the verse says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, the meta narrative about what sin is, perhaps violation of command, uh, judgment, even what glory is. We'd have to talk about what glory is, you know. But that verse carries a standalone interpretation in our mind. And then Dan mentioned last week when we were considering that, that if we look at a couple of the verses, yeah, the very next verse, but let me just read a little bit of larger context. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by the grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as the propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. So anyway, in other words, there's a lot more to study around for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, unless you're let off the hook of any possible other ramifications of meaning by the meta narrative that you have that, well, obviously, yeah, we've all, we've all sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. Make sense? So this is a way to, to overcome our resistance to taking a fresh look, digging into scripture, using new language and seeing what's going on. Now, it's not a free-for-all. It doesn't mean that everything is the same and you can just interpret things willy-nilly, but it really will change the way you 
you see things and it'll, it'll, it'll ease some of the tension. It has eased some of the tension in me. Some of these things absolutely deserve another look because the assumptions that triggered me are just wrong. They're just wrong. So, any questions? Okay. Okay. And understanding the broader portion of what you're teaching, a meta narrative is a broad topic that can be broken down into the verbiage that it uses to form the assumptions or the stories to, to form or inform them. Yeah. Right. In, in, in other words, sometimes the, the, the details that we're that are, that are under the influence of meta narrative, we're, we're being earnest in studying them. But if we have a string of assumptions that defines sin one way that define righteousness only one way, in other words, it, it, it limits our ability to see it any differently. Right. So, so, the fact that it's a meta narrative is not necessarily as important as the language that's used to describe it. Right. Right. But the meta narrative in one way is even more important because it doesn't have to stand up to scrutiny. It has the emotional power to blind you. And, 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 but once you expose it, like any other thing that's like that, once you expose its power, it loses some of that power because it subconsciously limits what you can see or read or interpret something as. And that's why I think it's, it's important to realize. And, and see, most of us aren't getting our meta narrative at the same time and with the same intensity that we're studying a new topic that we're interested in in scripture. The meta narrative came from back when we were a kid or back when we were in Bible school the first time or some powerful sermon that caught us, you know, and uh, like the idea that, that the thing God said about don't eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil was a law. There's nothing in there that says that was a law. We interpret that as a law and then apply the whole juridical scheme to it, the whole juridical meta narrative by saying, well, then obviously, Adam had to be judged. Adam had to be punished. And it doesn't, those conclusions are the fruit of the meta narrative. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So and they build on each other as well. They do. They do. Yeah. And, 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 and like anything that's dangerous, any informational thing that's dangerous, a meta narrative is a little bit like propaganda. And that's, that makes it sound too narrative because they can be positive meta narratives and negative. But if you think about some of this stuff we're talking about, I personally think that the uh, critical theory, critical race theory, is a propaganda narrative that then changes, and they're trying to use it to change what you teach your kids in school. You know, yeah, that makes sense. Good question. Go back a slide. I, I think, yeah, you kind of said a little bit of this, but yeah, these are not the meta narratives. These are the expressions, the, the assumptions of the within it that come. Yeah, and I think. Yeah. You know, obviously, meta narrative is good, bad, or indifferent, whatever. It just compared to a worldview. Usually, a worldview is something you're conscious of. You mm -hmm. say you have the meta narrative is kind of the real. What do you really think? Yeah. In your heart of hearts, and how does that get expressed? Because the two meta narratives you see there is the left is really saying there's God, and then there's us who are a we're a problem. Yeah. And there's this problem relationship between yeah. the two all the time. And all of those are expressions of that problem. Yeah. And if you string those things together yeah. into, and don't lose sight of the, the word narrative. Yeah. If you string that into, then all of a sudden, like we have in contemporary news today, you have a bunch of domestic terrorists that were there on the Capitol on the 6th. And thank God they're still being held in Guantanamo, except it's in Washington, D.C., you know, yeah. and, and it's the narrative that adds the power, and it's the narrative that prevents you from even asking another question, like, did they really do that? Right, and you that's know, the, I think, yeah, that's the difference. A meta narrative is inside you, and it may or may not be conscious, 
CRT, you said the terrorism thing, those are all narratives to propagate mm -hmm. those ideas. And I, I use those as illustrations just to show the yeah. power that a narrative has to right. propagate an idea and to limit discussion, shut down thinking, shut down investigation right. and options. And, you know, we're Joyland, a questionable church. And so there's not a lot of those that want to own that title of questionable right. because of the negatives in it. Now, somewhere you're going to work through your questions. You have to work through your <laughs> questions. But, but, so. but uh, to question your meta narrative takes intentionality and courage. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, there's a, I think a quick question to go back to is God fundamentally good? Mm -hmm. Is God indifferent or does God ticked off? Right. And not every narrative has to include this many pieces. Right. It could just be straight up. So, all right. So now the one other application is if you plug perichoresis in and measure the legitimacy of the meta narrative that you believe or the meta narratives that you believe against that, you're going to have to change some of your thinking because stuff that is a part of the meta narrative where God sits on a throne, distant, behind unapproachable glory, and makes a whole bunch of uh, judgments in response to his offense that have nothing to do with being a father, that have nothing to do with being incarnate. You know, then, then that reveals your meta narrative needs to be reexamined. Yeah. Ronnie? Let's say somebody finds this video in the future. Yes. Uh, of this service. And they are earnestly trying to figure out the difference between the yellow column and the blue column. Mm -hmm. Their meta narrative. And they want to try to figure out how to possibly shift from the yellow to the blue. And in the process of doing that, they're starting to deconstruct or take everything that they thought they believed. And it's sort of, now I don't know anymore. Yeah. What would you advise them to do in the process of that change of paradigm or meta narrative to hold on to so that in the process, they don't feel like everything's really totally screwed up? Oh, that's a really good question. And it, it's not an easy answer. Um, what we did here at Joyland is an example. <clears throat> a few years ago, we started in Genesis. And we started looking to see if we could find the assumption that God's holiness was offended by Adam's disobedience and that God reacted by withdrawal because his holiness was offended. And, we, and so just looking at that one topic, where's the offended, angry God? We worked through the first few chapters of Genesis and never found it. And so what I would suggest is if you feel like, see, we have the Holy Spirit on our side in this too, because if you've grown up with the meta narrative and that meta narrative has you trapped, one of the things the Holy Spirit wants to do is deliver you from the falseness of that. If, it, if there's a false piece to it, because he is the spirit of truth and he'll lead us into all the truth. So you just start asking, Holy Spirit, show me one thing that I believe that may not be true about the father. Show me one thing that may not be true about the Father. Because that's really where it starts. And that's where most of the damage is done. Because it's God who's painted in a false light if we see sin wrong or wrath wrong or righteousness wrong. To, to be mistaken about what sin is has a certain consequence. But to be mistaken about who God is because of what you believe wrongly about sin or grace or righteousness or something, that's terrible. That's terrible. And so I, I would say, yeah, that's a good question, Ronnie. Ask the Holy Spirit. If you have this feeling there's something more, there's something different I should know about you, God, ask the Holy Spirit. Show me that. And then just allow yourself to look it up. You can just take an electronic concordance and look up grace if grace is the topic or righteousness if the righteousness is the topic. Look through a couple of different sermons. Ask questions. Write it down. Talk to the Lord about it and see. It's a good question. It's my grief with the deconstructionists because a lot of people, they don't have a way to do that and they just throw everything away and they end up living in a house of rubble. It's not necessary. I think uh, just one thing we didn't talk about tonight was everything is going to hell in a handbasket. 
everybody believes that mm -hmm. the world is degrading people are dying it's getting worse every second and i feel like that permeates mm -hmm. a lot of this like you know that's where yeah. a lot of the yellow stuff comes from yeah and with that i think it just influences the way we think about all this stuff like how could we possibly think about the blue stuff yeah so anyway and and honestly uh th there's some good questions to ask is that really true you know is it worse now than it used to be? Are more people starving than they used to? Are more babies being born dead? Are more mothers dying in childbirth? Are, are uh, all these things happening that everybody, you know, that would be evidenced if things were getting worse? No, actually, a lot of that's not true. A lot of that's not true. Uh, Slavery is not near as big. It's still a big problem, but it's not as big as it was. You know, all that kind of stuff. So, it's good. And I think we're ready if you want to. Greg, you want to go back and holler at Laurel or Sterling? So bless you guys. I know it's, it's kind of an abstract concept a little bit, but it, does it make some sense that you just, and, and the first step, the first step that I would suggest in light of Ronnie's question, just ask the Holy Spirit to make you conscious of the story and the components of that story that cause you anxiety and cause you to think in ways that you have a question about whether it's cool. Oh, it is. Yeah, it's a the yellow side has a tendency to take refuge in religion. Or the other thing is, if the yellow things are true, religion is a good answer to that issue. If the blue things are more true relationship is the natural byproduct of that and how you interface with those. That's a good comment. Okay.